the deep sea is the biggest habitat on this planet. Has the majority of life on this planet live inside it. And about 80% of the animals that live in those habitats are creating light for communication, for the various mentions, various reasons that I've mentioned before. This means the most common form of communication on this planet is not sound, it's not how we communicate visually, uh, sorry, by talking. The most common form of communication on this planet is light. And that alone, I just love. God, that makes me smile. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll have one aha moment after another. On this podcast, we're sharing with you the stories, the insights, the progress of thought leaders all over the world who are changing the future. And many of them, well, their work just isn't rising to the top of our feeds. We just don't even realize that they're out there tackling some of the world's most vexing problems and winning. (laughs) There is actually an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about. In fact, it's so hidden by the negative noise that I'm calling it a conspiracy of goodness. So welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of a giant global website called The Goodness Exchange. And at The Goodness Exchange, we're writing articles and creating video content, conversations, all about what's right with the world. And today we're going to have one of those conversations with someone I have talked to before on the Goodness Exchange and the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And we had such a great time that now that we're producing both video and audio, I wanted to have Nathan back again. So welcome, Nathan Robinson. Linda, it's so nice to see you again. Very happy to be here and always happy to share a little bit of wonder about the world with you. Well, I'm going to start by telling people just a little bit about your bio, because I refer to you all the time as one of my examples of people who are just doing what you are uniquely built to contribute in the world and accepting a little serendipity and making the most of opportunity. And mainly, I use you as an example of someone who is pointing to wonder in the world and how important wonder is in this search for joy that we're all on. You know, we want less fear and more joy, but we we don't seem to have a framework to get there. And I love your work from the sense of wonder that you're bringing to the world. Well, to me, there's just still so much of it out there. And I agree that sometimes when we look at media and when we see the stories that are being told about the world, A, sometimes it can feel like everything's been figured out. We've been everywhere, done everything already. But when you start looking, there's so much goodness in everything. There's so much awe, wonder, mysteries that are still yet to be discovered. And my mission with my work is to try to share, and this is mainly about the ocean life, so to share all those little wonders, all those little mysteries, those little things that make you just excited to learn more, make you excited to kind of jump in and figure out a different way that the world works or animals live and animals thrive. That's what really gets me going. And that's why I like sharing. I, it's so true. Okay. So now I got to fill people in on your background, talking about <laughs> wonder with Nathan Robinson, because Nathan had an experience that we think we both agree was kind of at the intersection of many, many forces, a sort of a perfect storm of forces that were going on when he recorded a video of him pulling a drinking straw out of a sea turtle's nose. All right. So (laughs) where's the wonder here, Dr. Linda? Well, you may not 
know Nathan Robinson's name, but you probably hearken back to a time, it was 2015, I believe, when suddenly single-use plastics became public enemy number one and drinking straws in general. And it comes from this video that now Nate probably has, what, 90 million views or more? Yeah, I've stopped counting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to let Nate tell the story because we want to talk about this perfect storm and why you and I matter in these perfect Mm -hmm. storms of social change. But the long and short of it is that he was doing research and they had the presence of mind to get out a cell phone when they realized this little thing was sticking out of a sea turtle's nose that they were working with. And it was so tell us all about it. I have to give all the credit here to a wonderful friend and researcher, Chris Figner. Chris Figner was the one who recorded it. So we were working on a research boat in Costa Rica and working with sea turtles and doing some studies to look at the genetics of the sea turtles. And when we'd pull the sea turtles out of the water, I used to actually look over them for little parasites, little creepy crawlies, things that live on them, because I was studying those animals at the time. And one of these animals, there was something wedged in its nose. We knew it was blocking the breathing. So I kind of jumped into, let's rescue the sea turtle. This is what I do. I'm a sea turtle conservationist. And it was Chris who had this great idea to be like, Nathan, calm down a second. Let me grab my phone, start filming the whole thing. And what we removed was, as you said, it was a plastic drinking straw. Chris and I both went home, both put it on our social media kind of platforms, and it just went crazy overnight. And it became this catalyst moment, this kind of blooming of, as everyone started sharing those videos, we started seeing these massive changes. All of a sudden, everything from restaurants to Starbucks to cities to countries started talking about or banning plastic straws to begin with, but it started the conversation about single-use plastics. and. What I often think about was when people ask me about, like, did you know the impact of that video when you shared that video? And I think this is the beautiful thing of, no, Chris and I were sharing this video because we wanted the world to know about what we'd experienced. But but that was, our thoughts kind of ended there. The change was because there were so many other people in the world having those conversations who needed something to show to their friends or their family or whatever and say, look, this is why I keep fighting against plastic straws or this is why plastic is damaging our ocean. And that force required everyone involved. And it's a good indicator, a good example of a movement is only as big as the people involved in it. A movement isn't a single person shouting their feet and trying to make a change. A movement is millions of people all banding together for a single goal. And it was wonderful to be part of such a movement. One of the reasons why I chose to start our interview out with that one example of kind of this serendipitous social collaboration that can happen, it just can happen out of nowhere, is that every single one of us can have a part of these major social turning points, right? Like we might hassle people for being, what's it called? Slack division, where you just sit around and go on social media. But, you know, anybody who shared that video, they had a role in creating this great social change. And there's definitely some kind of, I'm fortunate enough that I've been part of or have recorded multiple viral videos from different kind of aspects around biology and marine biology. But when you can actually look at the statistics behind them, there's this very organic kind of waterfall effect of, you might post, because I've had this previously, I've posted a video online and you share it on your platforms and it gets a couple of views over how many weeks, months, years, 
And then all of a sudden, it goes crazy. And then a week later, there's newspapers calling you up who want to talk about these stories. Or years later, people want to call up and talk about these stories. And the thing is that so often, that, that shows that's not you. You've just put it online. One person at one location with the right follower or the right connections shared it on their page. And from that is when the waterfall, this cascade moment happens. And we all play a role. I mean, it's all part of, as you said, like slacktivists and this idea that people often say, people aren't going out there and making actual change. They're just liking and sharing things on their Facebook page. But then you think about how have... The reason we're talking about the political situation and human rights in Iran right now is because of social media and platforms like that. It's because the reason we started that conversation about plastic on such a global level was because of social media. And that the social part of social media is it's not a single individual who put it on there. Even the biggest influencers on, on this planet, it's not them just posting a thing on their channel. It's everyone who shares it because that just makes this exponentially growing impact. And industry listens, government listens. You know, I spend a lot of time talking about how we should all be really conscientious about what we give our attention to, mm -hmm. because what we give our attention to expands. Mm -hmm. And we've got a choice. It could be really, really negative stuff that we allow and we participate in getting to it to expand. But it could be like this. I mean, <laughs> this is like we needed your exact <laughs> role. And mine and everyone else's exact role to get us to a new level of thinking about single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. And there's a positive feedback, I think, with this whole, like, what you pay attention to matters. It matters a lot more than you think. And a great example of this is advertisements, right? All of us in the world say, no, if I see an advert or an advertisement on TV, I'm not going out and I'm buying that pair of shoes right away. But the fact that it's one of the biggest industries in the world, advertising, shows that it has an impact. So what I'm saying is what you read, what you share, what you're paying attention to is impacting your behavior. So if you want to be a more positive person who has more wonder and excitement in your life, well, make the space to focus on these kind of things and it comes. If you really want to see yourself get lost in the negative spiral and focus on all the negativity and everything, and it's a great way to do it. But there is some self-control there. And what we pay attention to and where we divide our attention affects the information that comes in. And the information that comes in is the information that comes out. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to this whole topic of wonder that we want to spend most of our interview on today. The thing that Nathan is renowned for in his professional life is not this darn video of the turtle in the straw. <laughs> it's that he's one of only two people in the world who have filmed the giant squid at depth. Mm -hmm. This and is a life of rigorous <laughs> intention leading to a moment. I feel I'm incredibly lucky in my career because I've had a couple of these amazing encounters, amazing discoveries. And it's my, because of that, the direction of my research, I'm a researcher kind of first and foremost, along with a science communicator, means that I don't, find myself getting pigeonholed in a specific research topic. Like I work on sea turtles, or I work in the deep sea, or I work crustaceans. I now pick and choose my research projects based on wonder, based on excitement. So if I think that's a really cool project, I think people are going to love this idea. 
I think it's going to create some visuals that is going to get people's hearts pumping and they're going to think, isn't that amazing? I need to learn more about the ocean. And I feel so inspired by the beauty and the mystery you've seen. That is how I direct my research and what I'm going to study next, more so than focusing on one specific detail and trying to get to the, the fine detail of one question of one species and one system. So it's very fortunate, but I think it ties in so well with the conspiracy of goodness and this platform of kind of following your attention to things that grab your wonder and then yeah, letting it bloom. Okay, so let's start down this path. The two things that Nathan is doing that I really are just in and of itself a gift to our hearts and minds because of the wonder there. He's studying squid and there's so much going on with squid. It's just so <laughs> full of wonder. Story after story after story. I know. Don't tune out. You think you're not a science person or not a squid person. <laughs> Nathan has story after story that'll bring a smile. And the other thing that, that you've been led to, which I really want to make sure we talk about today, is this new depths you're following related to bioluminescence, mm -hmm. which our audience may know is organisms that are able to generate their own light in the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. So there's like this really bizarre world of wonder and beauty there that's just indescribable. Talk to us about it. Yes. Well, it's my connection to the deep sea was because really just through filming the giant squid. So that was what catapulted me into this realm down there. And as I've been, we've been developing some new technologies to try to film other large squid around the world and get even more footage of some of these incredible animals and, and the lives they lead. But you can't understand the lives of large deep sea squid without also thinking about bioluminescence. They're completely interlinked, and it's this wonderful world that's so different from kind of the surface world that we live in that I find absolutely fascinating. I really love this way of trying to think, like, put yourself in the mind of a different organism that might have different senses and feelings and desires and instincts and even, like, modes of consciousness that are different. And what I mean by that is just, and this is something we can talk about a little bit later, like squid don't have one brain, they actually have nine brains. So there's some evidence to suggest that their arms can actually have their own associated little brain. So their arms, it's like having eight minds that can sometimes work independently. You might have two tentacles, actually, one's trying to grab this object and one's trying to grab something completely opposite. And other times they'll be working together for a, a single whole. I just love that as a concept of it. How does that look like, or how does that experience feel for a squid, an octopus living through the world, versus our understanding of reality? But that was, I've already started to digress. The connection is squids, deep sea squid, live below, or largely below the impact of, or the reach of the sunlight, of the surface rays from the sun. Sunlight can only penetrate to 200 to 500 meters in most parts of the ocean, so about 600 foot to 1,500 feet. Below that, it's pitch black. The only light you have is the light created by little organisms, bioluminescent organisms, of which the majority of life in these habitats is bioluminescent. But one way to navigate these pitch black environments is to have a really good sense of smell. And this is what sharks do, so they can navigate largely based off smell and electrosensory perception. They can actually sense electricity. The squid are visual. So the world they see, and how they find their prey is through these little tiny flashes of light. That's how they interpret the world around them. So that's how it all connects into each other. 
It's trying to understand how the squid are interacting with this bioluminescent environment. If we're to understand this right, the bottom of the ocean, really no photons of light get there. So it's nope. just utter and from, complete black. From the surface, from the surface. Nothing's, nothing's going below right. 200 to 500 meters. But there is light there. It's just created by the organisms that live there. And it's just part of their physiology to be able to create light. Exactly. I mean, some of you might have heard of this bioluminescent bays around the world. And sometimes it's if you go right onto there. these, yeah, <laughs> there is sometimes you can go swimming in the ocean. And if you go swimming in the ocean at night, sometimes you'll see these tiny, it looks yellow, like little glints of kind of like stars as you swim, the areas of the water that you've disturbed. And sometimes it'll look like complete, like blue waves in the ocean. So sometimes it's not these little yellow glints. Literally every, every wave that crashes, you'll see this vibrant glow of blue. Those are all little organisms that when they get disturbed, for one reason or another, are creating a flash of light. Now in the deep sea, it's so beneficial to be able to create light for mainly, I mean, it must be so beneficial, otherwise these animals wouldn't have evolved this capacity, that over 80% of the life that lives in the deep sea creates some kind of bioluminescence. And it's a form of communication. These animals might be trying to scare away like a predator. So you might have one little fish, but maybe it's got a really powerful light on top of it. So a big predator comes up and it shines this really bright light to make the predator think it's the little fish is bigger than it is. Swims away. It might be to find the prey. It might be one fish trying to find another organism. It might be to do with camouflage. Sometimes you have wonderful examples. I think we were chatting earlier about the bobtail squid. It's a great example where they have, they'll create light, but they'll often do it on one side of their body. So you have lots of fish, for example, and lots of squid that will create light on the underside of their body, but not on the top of their body, which means that. If a fish is swimming above it and it's got no light at the surface, it's completely pitch black. But if you're, you have to say the light of the moon above you or the light of the sun above you, you actually need a little bit of light to be camouflaged. So how do you camouflage yourself in the middle of nowhere? Well, light is one way of camouflaging yourself. And I, I think there's so many mysteries there. Like was, It's this whole other language of how animals interact and we're slowly, bit by bit, unlocking some of these mysteries. Okay, so if I got the equation right, you know, the majority of our planet is ocean. Yes. Therefore, the biggest habitat of our whole planet is going to be seafloor. More so than seafloor, just the deep sea. So if you think about 70% of the planet, just surface area, is ocean. So about 30 to 40% is land and then around 70 to 60 percent is ocean then another say 70 percent of that are waters that are below 200 meters so below 600 foot and the deep sea goes down to 11,000 meters so 33,000 feet straight down so think of all that area between 200 meters to 11,000 meters. And you have the biggest habitat on the, the planet. That is bigger. You can fit all the world's savannas, tropical rainforests, temperate rainforests, tundra, polar ecosystems. You can fit that all in the deep sea with space to spare. And because it's so big, it also has the most amount of biomass 
this planet. So biomass is the weight of living organisms. If you had a scale, a, a cosmic scale, and you put everything that lived in the terrestrial habitat, every elephant, every red red sequoia tree, every ant on one side, and then on the other side, you put life in the deep sea, not the water, but just all the jellyfish, bacteria, fish, squid on the other side, then the deep sea is the biggest habitat on this planet by none. And yet we know very little about it, right? No. And there's a, there's a, a cruel irony, right, of the deep sea is incredibly important for our planet. It's incredibly important for the functioning of our ecosystems. The air we breathe, well, if we're talking about CO2 and climate change, so much CO2 gets trapped into the deep sea. So if we want to understand the role the deep sea is playing, we need to understand that ecosystem. So the amount of CO2 trapped in the deep sea is affecting rainforests all around the world. It's affecting us. It's affecting tropical storms. A huge amount of our food is increasingly coming from the deep sea, or at least deep sea supported ecosystems. But we often see it as kind of this alien, otherworldly, distant habitat that feels completely unconnected from our world. Someone pointed this out to me not too long ago, which was, I think, a wonderful way to think about it. As I said, the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the deepest point in the deep sea is 11,000 meters. 11 kilometers or, like, will that be, seven, eight miles. If you talk about the deep sea, you generally think that's somewhere so distant from you. But if you're talking about seven, eight miles down the road, that might be just your friend's house. That's the other side of town. That's, I mean, I'm trying to think of whatever. That's the size of Indianapolis, right? From one side to the other, or like major metropolitan area. And to us, that still seems like the same little place that's within a state. But for some reason, this, the deep sea, we've decided, is completely disconnected. And one way that I try to kind of bring a little bit of the deep sea into people's lives is through that wonder. I think these wonderful, crazy little stories is a great way for us to start to value these habitats. That is such a great way to think about it. This is a shift of perception that I won't forget. That is really the way we tune in a little bit better to the wonder part of the deep sea, even if we don't feel connected to it in any possible way. It's not that far. <laughs> it really isn't. It's not that far I mean, away. If I told you that there's an elephant one kilometer in that direction, a hundred thousand yards, you would be like, whoa, that's crazy. What if I told you if there was thousands of them, millions of them, you'd be like, this is amazing. That's the coolest thing. I'm going to go see it. But when you say, hey, you're out in a boat and you go a thousand yards straight down, you could have hundreds, thousands. Pilot whales, sperm whales, giant squid, colossal squid, all these crazy things. Let you, you start to realize we're a lot more connected to the deep sea than I think we realize. That is just a lovely way to think about it. Okay, so start telling us some stories. Tell me one of your, I want to mention one of the creatures that you've already mentioned, the bobtail squid. When I <laughs> talk about wonder and nature's wonder, I talk about that little squid. And it's you can say it better than me, but the way I explain it is, but it's got these bioluminescence organisms inside mm -hmm. its body. It's a symbiotic relationship, yep. maybe. Okay? Yeah, okay. yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're the same. <laughs> You're Anna. doing great so far. <laughs> <laughs> and they have co-evolved so that this little squid, when a predatory fish, as you said, is below it looking up, it could look like the moon just shining through the water. 
because it's exactly. a little round orb that's glowing. And then the fish is the predatory fish is going to leave it alone. I mean, these are the kind of little connections in nature that that can just bring a smile anytime we need one. And it's beautiful. One of the things I one of the things I absolutely love. What, what the first? Well, not not the first, but the second ever deep sea cruise I ever went on. The first one I was when I was trying to film the giant squid. I was so we had our cameras floating somewhere between down to around two thousand meters in the water column, and all of a sudden I saw a shrimp, pretty big shrimp, let's say this kind of size, swim in front of the camera, and as it swam in front of the camera, it left this huge like spew of neon blue like in front of it, and I was like, "What is that?" And I was asking people, and I started running around, and. Everyone was saying, oh, yeah, 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 this is deep sea shrimp. They just do this. Sometimes when they get a little bit spooked, it's actually, we call it spew. It's not vomit per se, but they have these glands inside their mouth that they spit out all this bioluminescence, so glowing neon blue into the water column. It's kind of like the opposite of, of like squid ink or octopus ink. So squid on octopus tend to ink at the surface so that whatever's chasing them can't see and all it sees is this kind of mess of ink and then this the octopus swims away in the background. Shrimp do the exact same thing, but instead of being in darkness, all of a sudden you're already in darkness, so all of a sudden you've got this big, bright blue light in front of you, you can't see what's going on, and that shrimp is miles away. And it was, honestly, I love it because it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. (laughs) It sounds silly because it's literally watching a shrimp vomit. So when you put it into like these terms, you're like, hmm, doesn't sound the most interesting thing. And then when you see it, it's this it's stunning. We'll have you help us connect to some videos to some of the things you're mentioning as we go. So if people just go to the Goodness Exchange after this conversation and look at the actual article about this interview, you're going to find all kinds of links to some of the wonders that Nathan is talking about. Does that sound good, Nathan? That sounds wonderful. And I'll make sure to share, make sure to share plenty of other things. Talk to us about what this whole world of bioluminescence. There's two examples. Keep going. So I mean, the best way to think of, and we'll talk about some weird, wacky squid in a second, but the best way to think okay. of a bioluminescence is, and I'm taking this from my mentor, Edie Widder, who came up with this terminology. Absolutely. If anyone just types in Edith Widder, you'll see all the incredible things that she's done for, for science. And she came up with this idea of what the ocean really is, is a bioluminescent minefield. And I mentioned earlier that a lot of this bioluminescence is stimulated when it's disturbed. So disturbance could be a breaking wave or could be a human swimming through. That's the stuff that you've seen the surface. But what about a sperm whale swimming down through the water column? Dolphins, pilot whales, squid, things like this. So what these animals are seeing, especially some of these larger squid, and you've got to remember that Giant squid in particular have the largest eye in the animal kingdom. So an eye that's bigger than my head. So it's evolved to be incredibly sensitive. The bigger your eye, the more photons can get in there. So it's a great way to have basically probably the most sensitive eye on the planet. And what they're seeing, they're being hunted by these sperm whales. And we think one of the reasons they have such big eyes is so they can see the sperm whale swimming through the water. So the sperm whale swimming, it's knocking all these tiny little microorganisms in the water. They're then bioluminescing. And then what you see is this trail probably running behind these organisms. The squid sees that, it knows what it is, it jets off. 
in another direction. And we have some footage that we've been trying to find ways to say quantify and yeah, trying to find ways to quantify the bioluminescence in the water column. There's two ways we've been doing it, both equally, equally as cool. One is you simply take a camera and you go down in a little submarine or a little robot or whatever technology I'm available to, and you turn off all the lights, you put a little kind of plastic film mesh in front of your camera. And if you move along at a fixed speed, every time an organism bumps into your mesh, it will flash. And you get something that looks like going into warp speed in Star Wars. You know, there's like energy, oh, this Star Trek, you know, the energized moments when the stars all stretch out. It looks like that. It literally looks like, because you have all this just neon blue just floating at the camera. It's absolutely unbelievable. The other way we're able to measure it right now is using, it's going to get a little bit science-y, but I will, I'll try to keep it simple. It's using no, neutrino telescopes. So physicists use neutrino telescopes to measure important waves and particles from space. So we might have exploding stars in space sending out neutrino particles, and you're trying to measure these kind of the levels of neutrino particles. The way you measure these particles from space is you need the darkest habitats known to humankind. So some of them have been placed in the bottom of mine shafts. So you're rather on the mine shaft because these little particles are traveling through everything, right? And that's where you start to pick up your little neutrinos. And this gives you information about exploding stars on the outside of the galaxy. A bunch of people also thought, well, where's a great place to put them? Let's put them at the bottom of the ocean. Now, a lot of these physicists put it at the bottom of the ocean without realizing that the bottom of the ocean is surprisingly bright when you actually start to account for all this bioluminescence. So when I'm working with some of these individuals where the noise in their data, when I say the noise, the data that they don't want because they don't want this like light created by life, they want the little measures of energy created by, yes, neutrinos traveling through solar systems, you can tell them apart, more or less, and then the physicists give us the rest of the data from their little setups, and we're using that to understand the distribution and movements of bioluminescent organisms throughout the world. So I love this. I mean, I love that as a story. Like, the physicists went out to do this, and they're trash data. The data that, like, that is the biggest bane on the planet. So like, oh, we have to clean all these data because we've got all these little sparks that isn't interesting. And all the biologists are like, yes, please, I'll have all that. <laughs> Some great information what? there. What a great serendipitous collaboration. <laughs> yes, it's some wonderful, it's wonderful stuff. And like I said, it's all to do with understanding how these organisms, how these squid are seeing their habitats because they're using that, their vision. So some of them are using it to have, to hunt, some of them are using it to interact. I mean, Squid change color so often, especially some of these bioluminescent squid, are changing color in front of each other. So they're communicating some information between individuals. And to understand a lot of this information, we need to understand the distribution of bioluminescence in the water column. Maybe squids go to the brightest areas of the ocean because that's where they can see the most other organisms and they can, say, avoid predators because. When you're in the middle of these really high areas, high but bright bioluminescent areas, then they'll see that sperm more coming because it's disturbing all this bioluminescence. 
Or maybe there's something different. Maybe some of these big predators actively try to avoid these bright areas because they want to stay a little bit stealthier, a little bit sneakier. So you just can't understand this habitat without thinking about light. No, okay, so you've got this great wrap uh, that you can explain much better than I can about how this realization about how much communication is going on using light could actually fundamentally shift the way we think about communication. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about biology is it gives us a chance to think, I think, outside of ourselves. So it's when we're thinking about how, how do other animals interact with the world that might not have the same senses as us or different senses. I spoke earlier about electrosensory perception for sharks. So what is it like to be able to sense electricity? What for other animals is it like to be able to sense low direction? Some animals have their own internal compass. They know north is north and south is south and east is east. What does that feel like? What does that look like? And the beautiful thing I think about, especially the deep sea and we're talking about bioluminescence, is as I mentioned, as you brought up actually, the deep sea is the biggest habitat on this planet, has the majority of life on this planet live inside it. And about 80% of the animals that live in those habitats are creating light for communication, for the various mentions, various reasons that I've mentioned before. This means the most common form of communication on this planet is not sound, it's not how we communicate visually, uh, sorry, by talking. The most common form of communication on this planet is light. And that alone, I just love. God, that makes me smile. <laughs> me too. It's just such a, such a fresh way of like kicking the door down on possibilities of all kinds. Completely, like it's, completely. It's, it's not the way we've always thought it is. And it is very clearly this completely other way. What other things outside are not the reality doesn't match the way our particular perception would have us think? Yeah, we, we have, there's a, as humans, we have one way of perceiving things in the world and understanding the world. But there's also a nice little lesson there for each of us. We, each of us are perceiving the world in our own little unique way. So that realization that, I mean, on the kind of macro sense, that big realization that, hey, some animals don't see the world visually or hear the same sounds as we hear or taste the same things that we taste. It also applies to each of us. Each of us is living our own wonderful, unique little experience. And I think that's an important thing to always keep in mind, that we all have our own interpretation, senses, experiences. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of like, life. That's one of the things that makes us all unique and different. It's so true. Okay, so we're going to dive into more, more wonder and how to think about wonder and how to pause in our life to mm -hmm. recognize those moments. Let's take a quick break, and I'm going to introduce you to some things that'll get you to wonder a lot faster. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Nate Robinson. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. 
But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today. Because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with a tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back and we're talking with Nathan Robinson, a scientist who you may know from a very serendipitous event in, in, in our, all of our times in about 2015 when he recorded he and his fellow scientists pulling a drinking straw out of a sea turtle's nose, which launched the world into this sudden real awareness about single-use plastics. So that's what Nate is noted for, but he's also a renowned scientist in his scientific world for being one of only two people who filmed the giant squid at depth. And currently, Nathan is really interested in the role bioluminescence can play in our understanding of our world, around the world around us, and even how it relates to the way we interact with the daily world of others. So Nathan, let's continue this conversation. We were going to also talk a little bit about the consciousness that mm -hmm. your work demonstrates. Like we think of consciousness as a human thing, but you got any stories of interactions that you know that creature was <laughs> definitely conscious? Tell us some stories. When you start looking for, say, consciousness in, in animals, marine life, it's, I mean, it's just all over the place. You'll see so many examples of, I mean, you see so many examples where we might be projecting human emotions the same way we do with our dogs, like empathy, compassion, friendliness, all this kind of stuff. But the more you look, the more evidence there is the more evidence there is that animals are 
way more complex than we think, but they also have a completely, probably unique view on what it means to be conscious. And as I mentioned earlier in our chats, I think squid are such a wonderful example of this because they are incredibly unique, kind of distinct from humans. If you think about the evolution of intelligence and the big kind of mammalian brain that we have, you had, say, one path kind of growing off the became all the large kind of terrestrial species that we have today, the reptiles and the mammals and everything else. And part of that is our big human brain. But then you have the separate blossoming of intelligence that came out of cephalopods, so squids, octopus, cuttlefish, nautilus, a bunch of their kind of long tentacly things in the ocean. What's interesting is they evolved from, they are mollusks. So like gastropods, so snails and clams and things like this. They're all the same family, but for some reason, cephalopods, squid, octopus, cuttlefish, nautilus, had this wonderful explosion of intelligence. And they are arguably one of the most intelligent organisms in the ocean, but their, their experience of, say, intelligence is wildly different from ours. And you couldn't, you couldn't do an IQ test to test that would actually test each of them. But you'll see like playful behavior in octopus. There's wonderful examples and amazing stories of octopus in laboratory settings that jet water, because they've got a little siphon that they use for jet propulsion. That's one of the ways they can move. And there's stories of how they will squirt, but only at certain people in the lab. So they might not like, or might particularly like, either way you want to perceive it, say the janitor. The janitor comes in every night and is cleaning up. And every time he walks past, he gets a little jet of water in the back. And this playfulness is absolutely, absolutely incredible. And I've seen this myself. And the way you say you interact with, say, squids or octopus and things like this, when you, if you ever go diving with them, You'll see often, squid are a great example, they can change color very quickly. They'll come in close, they might dart away, they might check you out, but they'll check you out and pulsating colors and have these kind of bands of colors that kind of wave back and forth. And they're trying to tell you something. We don't know what that is. That might be stay away. It might just be, hey, I'm confused. It might be come check me out. But there's some wonderful, 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 wonderful stories about the complexity of life. But the thing that, one of the things that fascinates me the most is Squid are very different from us inside. And they have one central brain that is actually, it's like a donut shape and it's around their throats. But then they have eight little brains attached to each of their tentacles. So if you watch an octopus on the seafloor, if you go to an aquarium, what you'll see is you'll often see tentacles doing slightly different things. So you might see one tentacle reaching over here to say grab this food item, while this tentacle might actually be trying to pull the octopus into a shelter. The best way to describe it that a couple of scientists suggested is that when the octopus is kind of at rest, each tentacle has, or each arm has its own mind. It's just doing what the arm wants to do, responding to what the arm is responding to. And then when the head kind of wants to take over and say, hey, we're all doing one thing together, then they'll all move in a coordinated fashion. But when that main brain's not engaged, then it's just like eight little brains doing their own little thing. Yeah, I find that nuts. Just imagine, what's that like? Imagine if your, your arms did their own little things when you weren't paying attention. When you weren't paying attention, the arm would creep off to the refrigerator and come back and 
grab your snack and you wouldn't realize what's going on. So this, I mean, this points to, like I mentioned, this just knocks the door down on opening up our eyes to the way other ways of communicating can extend way past our own experience. You know, one of the articles we wrote on the at the Goodness Exchange is about this man named Daniel Kish, who was born without any eyes. And, or well, he had his eyes removed due to a kind of a genetic cancer really early in life, before he was one. And he learned mm-hmm. to see the world through sound. That all that part of his brain that would have been devoted to sight reapplied itself to using sound as a way of picturing his environment around him. And I'm sure this is just one extension from that, right? It's just using a different sense in a new way. All of it important, Uh, all of it valid. Yes. I mean, his example is such an, it's an insane example because if you ask me, like, how do you navigate the world through sound? Can you make clicks and know where the walls are? Like, no, I have no, no thoughts, like understanding of how that works. But the fact that certain people have been able to figure this out shows because two things. A, we're capable of so much more than we ever realized. Things that are completely beyond our realm of what we even think is possible are possible, are plausible, are achievable. And then there's also that tangent of, and when we realize that our, how we interact with the world is, could be so much broader than we currently do, or how we sense the world, it actually brings us closer, I think, to natural life, because there's this whole variety out there of diversity of, as I keep saying, senses, experiences, consciousnesses. And I think that actually connects us. It makes us more similar than, say, the more and more distinct. And the natural world is pointing us to all those possibilities if we'll just give our attention to it. Completely. Yeah. So, you know, before we get off this, we're kind of hopping around this topic of consciousness. You know, I, I wanted to get your take on a couple things that I think have risen to the top of the public zeitgeist. Just, you know, what's your sense about it? A lot of folks saw this wonderful documentary, strange and wonderful by some people's estimation, called the My Octopus Teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you run across that? And what was your thought? Yes, I've seen that. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, so I loved it. I loved it in the sense that I think the director does such an amazing job of showing the complexity of wildlife and the kind of connections we can have with organisms as they're... As like conscious sentient beings. It was, we often kind of think like when we're like eating fish, like it doesn't really bother us. We get a fish, we cut its head off or go fishing, get it, cut its head off, eat it, done. And then you watch a documentary like this and I have friends who have never, ever really, I mean, maybe they're not as, say, I say never, ever, but maybe they're not as involved or as passionate about, say, the eco-friendly movements as, as others. But they'll be watching that documentary with a tear in their eye. And all of a sudden, they've got, I don't know, squid plushies. And every time they see a squid in a chrome, they're super excited. And <laughs> the power of that is amazing. It's so important. And this is, I think this often gets into awe, love, and so many of these kind of wonder, wonderful things. Of I often try to use, say, that I think that tool, that kind of human capacity, human capacity for empathy, is such an incredible tool for conservation. I actually think when we're talking about conservation, we miss the mark sometimes when we talk about it in 
numbers and dollar figures, and here's the percentage of rainforest that has now been destroyed, and here's the amount of sea turtles left swimming in the ocean, and here's the amount of CO2 that was produced in the last year. Because that's not how humans work. That's not what we engage with. When you start to tell an emotional story, then neurodefying people love it. People never, ever harm a squid in any way, shape, or form, or an octopus, sorry, because they'll see how compassionate they can be, how caring they can be, and they feel that human attachment. And it's kind of like the ticket hold back to the straw video, right? I often give this example in a presentation that I give, and I show a study in the Journal of Science, which is one of the biggest scientific journals in the world. There's a really important study that talks about the amount of plastic that has entered into the ocean, and scientists have estimated it somewhere or another. And the take-home, or the big kind of headline is something like, 137 trillion tons of plastic enter our ocean from riverine sources per year. And I always say, I say that sentence out loud, and I know it's important, but I'm just, I feel flat inside. But you show me an image of a seal with a beer ring on those beer, like six pack rims around its flipper. And my heart's like ready to explode. And for us involved in kind of communication and trying to enact change, there's so much there that we need to start tapping into to kind of use these positive emotions of empathy, love, connection, things like this to promote conservation. There's still not, I am still a scientist and there's still a hundred percent space for data, facts, science, and we shouldn't be doing anything without that as our backing. But that emotional connection, that's amazing. And that, my octopus, was it my octopus friends? Um, uh, my octopus teacher. My octopus teacher, sorry. My octopus teacher. I think it does. That's what comes of that. That's what that to me, that's what kind of jumps out to me. Every time I think about that, I just think about <laughs> how much positive, how much positivity has come out of this wonderful, sweet story that has shown the complexity of what life is like living at the bottom of the ocean. And it makes similarities between the challenges that we have navigating our lives when you start to realize this one little octopus in the strangest sense, it's trying to do the same thing as we all are. It's just trying to have a bit of shelter, have a bit of fun, have, build some kind of family or collective units, whatever, socialize. And that's it. And its tribulations are, when it goes out to feed, there are sharks swimming around. And then we start thinking, well, our tribulations are, well, when we go to work, we might get fired or we might get run over. But it's all just that little struggle to survive. But the way he paints it is... It is. And then I, I've got to share with you. So this is going to be in the show notes too. I got to share with you. You and I have had a little email conversation about someone I hope to interview very soon named Cy Montgomery. She's written that mm-hmm. crazy cool book called Soul of an Octopus. Mm-hmm. Now that book will make you just scratch your head about <laughs> everything you thought was true. It's back to the story about the siphon. She tells Mm -hmm. story after story after story of her experience just diving into this world of octopuses, particularly at the New England Aquarium in Mm -hmm. Boston, I think, is where she goes back and forth and back and forth. And all their experiences there with the various personalities of octopus. And you have some that love doing experiments and some that don't. And they've even shown, there's a wonderful experiment where they've shown that, I think what they had is they had an octopus in a tank and they had, I can't remember what it was, 
there's something floating at the surface, basically something that the octopus could play with, and it was potentially getting pushed by, say, the jets in the yes. in the tank. Water and they've shown that some octopus will actually sit there with their siphon playing with this little thing all day long. So there's some that are playful, and others won't. Others will just sit in the corner and be like, yeah. mm, "No, nah, I'm not into that kind of stuff." Yeah. And as you said, they like certain people and they don't like others. That is a very mind-bending book I can recommend to people. I'm just finishing it now beside my bed right now. Really, it brings a smile to your face. It's one of those books you can just pick up anytime. It's a good bedside read. And the other one that I wonder if you've come across, have you come across that PBS documentary? It's called Octopus Making Contact. It's a nature documentary on PBS about a scientist in Alaska who is going to be a long year. And he and his daughter decided to bring this giant tank into the middle of their living room and live with an octopus in their living room and interact with it every day, all day long, just live with it in the center of the living room, watching TV, playing with it, interacting with it at all times. That is an amazing documentary. And it's very clear by the end of that documentary that there's a lot to consciousness that we aren't even asking the right questions about. I love it. I, I need to watch that. I haven't seen that PBS documentary, but that sounds it's, right up my yeah. street. It's called Octopus, Making Contact. I'll put it in the show notes as well. But to see mm-hmm. this, this scientist and his 16-year-old daughter build a life for a year, because of course, that's the length of an octopus's life. That was a whole other awareness, right? Like, well, well, this is part of the mystery of how intelligent these animals are. And when we say it's very, diff- very, very difficult to compare IQ, it's because most of our intelligence, knowledge, understanding of the world comes from experience. We go out, we test something, we learn something, we move on. We communicate information, we learn, we move on. Which works great when you have a long lifespan, when you have 70, 80 years to test and share and go over this information. From what we understand of octopus or cephalopods, they have less capacity of this kind of learnt kind of information, the way we learn, but they're a lot more intuitive and exploratory and kind of figure things out because if you only have a year to live or a couple of years to live you don't have that much time to test out every single eventuality you kind of have to just give it a shot and i think that's probably where a lot of this playfulness comes from is their whole just due to the sense of their lifespan they've got to play that's how they've got to figure they've got to figure out as much of the world as they can within two or three years to make the best of it and yeah and what does that mean to our whole consciousness about our own consciousness about our impact on the world around us and our responsibility and what's intelligence and what isn't? I mean, this changes everything when you really, those three documentaries and Nathan's work really will, can, can expand our, your perception of everything <laughs> and bring in a whole lot of new questions. Hey, Nathan, I want to ask you, you know, before we wind down here, you know, you're studying so much. You're following your curiosity every day. You're studying so much. That's just joy and wonder. Tell me what you really wish people knew. I think that the thing I said, what I really wish everyone knew goes back to what we were saying earlier about everyone having a role. My biggest goal as a researcher is for... Oh, he's not really as a researcher. My biggest goal as a marine biologist is to leave this planet with the oceans being slightly better than when I arrived. So like my impact on the world has made those oceans a little bit healthier for the next generations to enjoy. And that's one of my big, say, deepest passions. And each one of us can play a role. 
like even if it's sharing videos or if you're recycling your plastic or you're driving your car less all of these little things there might not be someone giving you a pat on the back and saying good job you've just saved the planet you bike to work today but all those actions combined start to make such massive impact and you made a wonderful statement earlier when we were talking about sharing and sharing posts online and slacktivism and all that kind of stuff of governments and industry respond when you see that there's such a social force behind these things so yes one share is just one share it's just one click but it's part of a greater whole that eventually gets someone who has the capacity to say maybe for an entire multinational organization or for an entire country start saying okay no more fossil fuels i'm calling it now done that's the change those things come out of these big movements these big mobilizations of like efforts and energies that people focus on one topic to try to address so my take home is everyone has an impact everything we do has an impact and let yeah let's all be part of the bigger movements yeah yeah the, every, every do what you can do that's all you don't have to go save the rainforest personally but you can yeah. move in a given day that add weight to that future exactly i mean we're, and we're all fighting our own personal fights like yeah. i strongly believe in i strongly believe in so many movements going on around the world whether it's anti-sexism anti-racism all these massive topics that are going on but the fight i fight every day is for the oceans but i do my bit whether it's in the language i use or the organizations that i interact with that support the world that i want to see so if you might be spending your life promoting the supporting the livelihoods of refugees around the world but you might also be the kind of person who asks for no plastic straw at a restaurant and all of those little efforts all around the world all of our little unique kind of movements that's what makes a difference we're all it's in one sense we're all supporting each other we're all trying to do the same thing and you don't have to everything you do whether it's you can live your life in the exact same way and you can say you can take your bike to work as opposed to driving to work once and that's still better than never having done yes okay so i'm thinking of this example to really leave people on a high note you know we were it was traveling in kenya the week that they said that's it the day they said no more plastic bags mm -hmm. <laughs> and they didn't announce it very much there was like no preparation just one day boom you couldn't get a plastic bag at the grocery store or in any way plastic bags just disappeared in that week and you wonder how this happened because Every action like that from a government or an industry or, or a, you know, a, a business that's maybe ruining our globe with some practice they're doing, one by one by one, the evidence mounted in someone's mind who was a decision maker. It mounted, it mounted. They saw this, they, somebody said that, somebody remarked this. And then one day, it was the worm just turned and they said, that's it. This week in Kenya, we're never going to have plastic bags again. And so what if what your voice brings to the table could be that one thing? And that's why I we're circling back to where we started this conversation was with, you know, you and your fellow scientists having the presence of mind to post that video. You probably never thought you were going to begin a global 
war against single-use plastics or really amplify it, but there it is. And it's a wonderful thing because it shows the thing that I learned the most from that video was that there was a global community of people who are just as passionate about this as I was. Right. That was why that was one of my big take-homes from this message. It wasn't just me standing on my soapbox shouting at people. It was that when I actually had this message, so many other people were saying no single-use plastics. And then so many people around the world were like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's my message too. That was I mean, it was just a wonderful moment to realize how many people are involved in this. So if you want to make the better place, I think, or make the world a better place, I think Nathan's story and his continuing work on things like the wonder that squid can teach us and bioluminescence, there's more of that to come. And again, we're going to fill this particular episode on the goodness exchange. If you go to this article about this podcast, you're going to find all kinds of stuff that Nate's going to share with us so we can multiply the wonder. Wonderful. Nate, how can people help you? How can, where do you want them to find you? What do you need to have happen next? The best way to support me is to follow my social media handles, Dr. Nathan Robinson, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, those things. I often will share latest discoveries, new campaigns that I'm leading or championing, things like that. So the best way is follow my socials. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. There's often specific fundraising calls as well for new projects and any support that you can provide to any of those is incredibly welcome. And as we keep saying, if you like something, if you want to get people excited about anti-plastic initiatives, help share my stuff. It helps get that message out there. It helps promote the work I do. And that's, it's all part of the game. Well, thank you so, so much. You know, the Goodness Exchange is trying to amplify the work of so many people, exactly like Nathan, whose voices are just not rising to the top against the weight of the negative noise. So do what you can to amplify all this wonder. And I think that you'll start seeing all the goodness and, and progress that Nathan and I have been talking about. Thanks so much. Enjoy your week. And more joy, less fear is going to be found in seeking out wonder. Do you agree, Nathan? Holy, could not agree more. <laughs> okay. Have a great day, everyone.